You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, the results of The Athletic's first ever fighter survey hit the streets this week. And you can go ahead and get 40% off right now if you head over to The Athletic and sign up for a year. This is something we've been working on for a few months now. I know we're all excited to uh, to get it out there in front of the public. You had a story come out today to uh, to lead us off, if you will. Why don't you tell the kids at home what the Athletic Fighter Survey is all about? Yeah. Well, basically the idea was to survey fighters on kind of a range of questions about the state of the sport. The Athletics have done this with a lot of other sports. I, I really love the one they did on the NHL uh, and surveying players. And it was interesting you know, to go from reading one of those as a fan and just like an outsider in a sport and kind of the insight you get into it. And I kind of – I'll admit I thought when we started doing it, I felt like I looked at the list of questions and I guess I probably assumed that I knew what the answers would more or less look like. I got to say I was surprised. I feel like I learned a lot just doing the surveys, reading the results of other people's surveys. Uh, you learn how this sport looks through the fighter's eyes when you do a bunch of these surveys over and over again. And especially like when you can guarantee them anonymity, you get a different level of honesty out of the fighters. Uh, they were really willing to tell us like, you know, how they really felt about some of the things. And I mean, like some of the stories coming out this week, I'm really looking forward to I think people will be surprised when they look at the financial realities for most fighters in the sport. Kind of just that I think people would look at fight night paydays and they go, well, okay, you know, that doesn't seem so bad. And then when you hear from fighters about what they actually keep, what they actually go home with after some of these fights and how that, that just constant financial stress, uh, like the built in instability of a life as an MMA fighter how that affects them and how that affects the way they view the sport and their training and everything. I think it's, it was eye-opening for me to, to do those surveys and to read, and I think it'll be eye-opening for a lot of people when they read them. Yeah, we talked to 170 fighters. We wanted to get to, to 200, but then the pandemic struck and kind of threw a wrench in our uh, in a wrench in our operations, but we still got a lot done. We talked to more than a dozen current and former fighters from the UFC and Bellator we talked to fighters from six countries, 20, or I'm sorry, six continents, 24 countries. Uh, we talked to people from the UFC, Bellator, PFL, one championship, Invicta, Ryzen, Cage Warriors, all kinds of, uh, all kinds of different promotions, all kinds of level of, of experience, uh, vastly different age groups. And, uh, I think people are going to like the results. I think people will learn a lot if they head over to the athletic and, and sign up. Remember you can use the promo code that is available uh, I believe it is MMA one year is the promo code. Um, you get 40% off a years long subscription. If you go over there and sign up, don't forget. We also got a ton of fun stuff going on over at the CME Patreon page. If you're not currently a patron, you should start right now. Basically more of this sweet, sweet CME content you crave for starters. There's the Friday power hour podcast, which is basically just another hour every single week of me and Ben talking about fights. Then there's the Wednesday live chats where you guys get to ask us any questions that you have uh, about MMA. And we spend an hour answering those questions. And then if that's not good enough, we got our special movie club podcast, which come out every other Wednesday this week. We're watching uncut gems starring Adam Sandler. All that goes down over at patreon.com slash co-main event. Get yourself over there today and sign up to support the show. Keep the CME totally ad free and the discourse unfettered. It would mean a lot to us if you would. We got three rounds as usual in the co-main event podcast this week. In round number one, wait, did Don, did, did John Jones just peace out the UFC? And in round number two, so this is the Gilbert Burns we were supposed to get hyped about in 2014. And in round number three, a show of hands. How many of y'all are actually going to buy UFC 250? 
We got music again this week from our guy Dion Rodriguez, a music producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash dbeat7. Again, that's the word beats with the Z. So we got all that. We got Are You Fucking Kidding Me? We got Just Saying Stuff. A lot of fun stuff coming up. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from David James, who writes, I understand the difficulty in filling fight cards during a pandemic, but this weekend's fight card seemed small, like a regional or contender series card. It also had a number of fighters making their UFC debut, some on short notice. Will these pro fighters be seen in a different light, like replacement players in the MLB or NFL? And he has a little exchange here where he says, bar patron, wait, you fought UFC? Bartender, once. I was on the Woodley Burns card during the pandemic. Bar patron. Oh, so you were a COVID UFC. Good for you, man. You made it to the show. Keep the change. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, I've, I kind of felt the same way, especially during the prelims of this fight card. You're watching it and going, okay, we are starting to get to the warm bodies era of the UFC's restart. And when you look at what's coming up in the next couple of weeks on some of these cards, you realize – we don't have the full roster available, and we're kind of just making do with who we can get to some extent. Yeah, uh, and I think you know we saw that also reflected in the the official payouts from the Nevada State Athletic Commission that came out just today, a few minutes before we started recording this. I believe one only one fighter made a guaranteed or disclosed six figure. Uh, payout and that was Tyron Woodley of course um you had lots of people on this card you who were were not sort of used to seeing you got Brandon Royval the raw dog who was a champion in LFA came in here and made his flyweight debut on short notice against Tim Elliott actually uh scooped up the victory uh you know you had, you had some uh Dana White contender series guys in Roosevelt Roberts and Brock Weaver among others out here they had to have there's a couple of catch weights on here 150 pound catch weight, 157 and a half pound catch weight. So guys, uh, you know, maybe not training like they're they're used to, maybe not cutting weight like they're used to. And again, like I think all this just sort of goes to underscore the UFC's show must go on mentality, man. You know, like that they they can't abide by any break in the schedule, so they're going to have to uh, get these events in any way they can. And if that means that they have to kind of go on the lookout for regional fighters or fighters who are. Uh, available to to make weight and come in here and fight in Nevada. That's what they're going to do. And uh, one thing that I wonder is how uh, fans will respond, how viewership will respond. You know, we get we get a little bit of a, an insight into that kind of third hand here with the podcast, just sort of looking at our numbers and the amount of interest that UFC uh, events generate, how much listener mail we get and stuff like that. You saw a big uh, swell of of interest and in, in mail and mail and kind of engagement that we saw around UFC 249. And it's kind of trickled off from there through those three events in Jacksonville. And now, you know, setting up this new shop over there at the Apex Arena in Vegas with with this fight night card, which was a little bit more profile, more lower profile. And then, of course, we had this weekend into UFC 250. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how all that plays out. Ben, what do you think? I mean, we've had we have such a a lengthy history at this point of kind of accepting whatever the UFC gives us. But at the same time, you know, you can kind of look around the sport and I don't think it takes a genius to see that over the, those same years that, that interest and viewership numbers have kind of trickled off. What do you think? How will people look at this pandemic era in the UFC? Will people give it their attention or are people going to kind of uh, uh, sit back and wait to see if we return to some semblance of normal lineups and normal business moving forward? Well, right now the UFC has the advantage of, having all other sports pretty much shut down. I mean, you see some others starting to slowly come back, and you, but you still don't see anything like returning to the normal sports schedule in general. So if the UFC doesn't have all the talent available that it usually does, it also should get a little more of the attention than the quality of these cards normally would merit just because – I think especially when they came back with UFC 249, people were really starving for something. You know, People really wanted some kind of live sports. And so even some of these events, even if you don't have the best lineup, I think you can still get some attention just based on that. But that's not going to last you forever. And so it, it will be interesting to see how that continues, especially once other sports start getting back to, to some semblance of their normal. Because you look at some of these lineups – and like this one, the co-main event here, Chad, Augusto Sakai versus Blagoy Ivanov. That's the yeah. co-main event. Yeah. And it, that tells you a lot. Like when you look at that and you're like, okay, 
that's on ESPN. That's the main card on ESPN. Like that, that is some fight night prelim quality stuff right there. And you see that with the next two, at least next two UFC events that you see coming up, one of which is a pay-per-view. You see that same kind of thing going on. And so like, I, I think that some of the people will tune back out again just because like, okay, the, the novelty of getting live sports back is only going to get you so far with the UFC. But I also think that the, the shit eating wild people among us, uh, you know, there's enough good fights here and there that they're still going to tune in for it. I don't know if they, they'll really remember a whole lot of the lesser known action here. I, I think to some extent, the idea of COVID UFC being like replacement players, I, I think that maybe fans are already kind of adopting that mindset. Yeah, it's weird to me. It's almost like watching these fights for different reasons or like it lights up different centers of my brain when I'm watching fights like Roosevelt Roberts versus Brock Weaver or even, you know, Billy uh, Quantiro versus Spike Carlisle on the on the main card. Both of those fights were kind of crazy. Like they both had, you know, relatively good action, especially, uh, you know, Billy Q against Spike. Those guys were had kind of a crazy little brawl there uh, on the main card of this event. But like, as I'm sitting back watching both of those fights, I realized like I am uh, like taking this in or appreciating these fights in a different way than I will appreciate or watch Gilbert Burns versus Tyron Woodley. And like Gilbert Burns versus Tyron Woodley, frankly, is, is a stretch as a main event, as far as I'm concerned, even for a, you know, a fight night card, but those are still guys that we know they're still involved you know, in the welterweight title picture, it makes some manner of narrative sense. It, it continues to tell a little bit of a, a story around the 175 five pound division and championship scene. Like I'm watching Roosevelt Roberts versus Brock Weaver or Billy uh, Quantillo versus Spike Carlisle, basically just to see two guys fighting in a warehouse. Like yeah. I don't know who these guys are. You know, they they are prospects, especially a guy like Roosevelt Roberts. Like. Uh, you know, they might develop into something at some point, but like, I'm not, it's weird, man. It's like, I'm thinking about them differently. I'm just watching them basically as a blow by blow account instead of considering all of the different sort of extenuating circumstances that I normally do about a fight that involves people that I feel an emotional attachment to or people whose stories, at least I know. And I understand some semblance of like why we're all here. These, these fights where you're just kind of, you're bringing in short notice people or you're bringing guys from the Dana White contender series. We haven't really had the chance to get attached to them yet. So like, as I'm watching it, it just feels different to me. Does it feel that way to you? Yeah. Well, you also, this fight card in particular, it feels weird. Like it felt weird to be sitting there and watching it, trying to get hyped for Gilbert Burns versus Tyrone Woodley. Or sitting there watching, you know, you're watching Daniel Rodriguez versus Gabriel Green on the the prelims, and meanwhile, America's on fire. Yeah, and so that feels strange. Like <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, we were really happy to have sports back, something to take our mind off the pandemic, something else that, that once the UFC kind of at least somewhat convinced us that this could be done safely, and we weren't seeing huge outbreaks, at least as far as we know, as a result of these events, it felt like okay, now maybe we can just. We can go back to having a nice little distraction to turn off our brains. But then this weekend especially, it felt – the whole enterprise felt kind of frivolous just to be focusing on in general. And then when you have – you know, it's not like you have these huge can't-miss fight cards and it's hard to really pay – give it like your full attention for a fight card like this while there's all this other stuff going on that seems so much more important. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It, it casts cast the whole thing in sort of a different light. This next question here from Tracy Dickinson, she writes, DC and Michael Bisping is the duo I didn't realize I needed in my life until last night. The banter between the two of them, i.e. DC giving Bisping crap for saying 25 rounds instead of 25 minutes, the knowledge between them when breaking down what's going on in the fight. Uh, the Dan and Mikey commentary. Uh, can either of them? Can we either have the the two of them together for all fights, or at the very least in some sort of TV show? DC and the Count, Dan and Mikey, some sort of good cop bad cop sitcom. I think it could be as big as the UFC Fight Pass reality show with Sage Northcutt living in the living with the Diaz brothers. Thoughts on if when we should make this happen? Now I, I noticed this too. Like we have a slightly. Uh, shuffled lineup for some of these UFC events now too, where we have, we're doubling up on the fighters in the booth. You have obviously Daniel Cormier and Michael Bisping here, both of whom are bringing 
uh, a vast level of experience actually in the cage to the broadcast booth, but two guys that in some ways go about their commentary a little bit differently. Uh, ben, do you like the dynamic between Cormier and Bisping or does it annoy you? No, I like it a lot. I agree with Tracy Dickinson here. I didn't realize that I would enjoy that commentary team as much as I did, but I definitely do. And I think they do both bring a little something different to the the comment, but like they they're both kind of the the fighters you'd want to hear from in terms of a commentary because especially Bisping, I always enjoy hearing from the fighters where they you know, not to say that Bisping isn't naturally athletically gifted because he definitely is. I mean, you don't get to become a UFC champion if you're not. But he also he had to work really hard at it. He wasn't like a John Jones. And sometimes I feel like the people who are just naturally, it's very easy for them. They don't always have the greatest insights on it because they didn't they didn't have to develop that part of the game. That wasn't an absolute necessity for them. And Bisping, it was a necessity for him to really learn the ins and outs of the game. And so I, I enjoy hearing from commentators like that. Also, when Michael Bisping referred to somebody as throwing a cheeky little back fist, I was like, yeah, see, this is why you need Michael Bisping on the commentary right here. Because who else? Dominic Cruz isn't going to be out here referring to a cheeky little back fist, Chad. That's true. That's true. I appreciate uh, Bisping's ability to kind of poke fun at himself at times when he'll like, you know, during this fight card uh, over the weekend – I think it was, there was a, an exchange on the ground. Maybe somebody was in half guard or full guard and they were striking. And he's like, you can do a lot of damage from this position. Just ask George St. Pierre, uh, who obviously, you know, knocked Michael Bisping out in there. Uh, or, or I heard him with a heard him with a punch from that position in their uh, in their middleweight title fight. So uh, <laughs> that's one of the things I like about Mike is that he's he, not only does he have a wealth of experience that he's uh, willing to tap into as he. Uh, as he commentates these fights, but he's also, you know, there's a little bit of self-deprecation there. It almost makes him, uh, in a way, a, uh, uh, like a, a singular figure in the, in the UFC color commentating landscape that like, he's out there to have fun. He's out there to bring insight to the, to the fights. And he will also occasionally like make a nod to his own career, not always in the most flattering light. I find it that it's like, it's one of the things that makes Bisping somewhat relatable to me. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. All right. Next question this week comes to us from John Tiller, who writes, Sugar Shane O'Malley has charisma, KO power, and a unique fighting style. Is he the next big crossover star for the UFC? Now, Ben. Sugar Sean? Sugar Sean O'Malley? That's what we're talking about? Oh, did I say Shane? Well, he wrote Shane. He did write Shane, so not my fault this time. I'm just out here reading the reading the emails. You know what I mean? Chad Dennis will read anything you put on the teleprompter. I'm a talking head out here, just just reading what's in front of me. Uh, ben Sean O'Malley is on the main card of UFC 250 against longtime veteran WEC favorite Eddie Wineland. They'll be kicking it off their men's bantamweight uh, fight on Saturday night. Now, O'Malley, who is close to the heart of the co-main event podcast due to the fact that he's a Montana native. Helena's own. Down there in Helena, the state capital. Uh, he's only 25 years old. He's 11 and 0 so far in his UFC career. 3 and 0 in the UFC, not counting his appearance on the Dana White Contender Series. We just saw him in March uh, pick up a pretty easy first round TKO victory at UFC 248 to advance himself to 11 and 0. Uh, I, I mean, if we were to say that we're kind of in the bag for Sean O'Malley because he's a Montana kid, he seems like he has a lot of potential. I think that would be an accurate statement, but I would also say I'm sort of approaching the O'Malley career with a degree of caution. Yeah. And and like, not that I think that he's overrated or like he's, he's not going to reach his potential or anything like that. I think he's really good, but I also like, I don't know that I would say he's the quote next big crossover star and maybe only because those kind of big crossover stars, man, are somewhat rare. Like depending on what you mean by crossover star, like I don't think Sean O'Malley is the next Conor McGregor or anything like that. Uh, but I do think he has the potential to develop into like a nice mid-range bankable like UFC attraction if he continues to to stay on the winning path. And frankly, for a guy who fights at 135 pounds, that ain't too bad because, you know, the 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 little guys in this sport that have been able to draw money are kind of few and far between. Yeah, I, I agree. We just haven't seen enough yet. 
to know. I mean, what we have seen has been encouraging. I think that, it, you know, he has charisma and a fun personality. He has a, an exciting fighting style. Uh, he's looked good from what we've seen of him so far. Also seems like when you look at how the matchmaking is going, that the UFC sees some potential and would like him to become a thing. Like the last fight, uh, that was a pretty easy one for him. This one, getting Eddie Wineland, I feel like Eddie Wineland is a bit of a known name, been around for a while, and so people recognize the name. And so it feels more like, okay, he's fighting an established UFC veteran at this point. But also, it's an advantageous matchup in a lot of ways. Like, I think Sh- Sean O'Malley is a pretty heavy favorite coming into this one. And it seems like a fight that the UFC puts together because they go, well, okay, here's one guy kind of towards the end of his career. And you can get a little bit of that name value rub on this new up-and-comer by having Sean O'Malley go in there and beat up somebody like Eddie Wineland. And I think that that's exactly what the UFC is expecting to happen. Yeah, he hasn't faced a particularly high level of of, uh, competition yet. So we'll have to see what develops with him as he continues to to improve and kind of move up the rankings and who he fights. We'll, We'll have to see how he responds to maybe a slightly better level of competition. But I would also say like he seems to have it in the personality department. He's a guy who will not shy away from getting a tattoo on his face, for example, uh, the week of of his fight. The which, week of the fight. Come on. Which I think we all looked at at the time and thought, is that the best idea? But like certainly didn't slow him down at UFC 248. But like, you know, this is the guy who's going to show up. He's going to have crazy hair. He's going to have tattoo on his face. He's going to be wearing some manner of outlandish getup during the pre-fight media stuff. It seems like, uh, you know, maybe for a young guy, a guy who's still sort of getting his feet wet in this sport, O'Malley uh, understands some aspects of the game that for some people, it seems like take a little while for them to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. In the self-promotion department. Yeah. The the face tattoo self-promotion department. And God knows if you're trying to promote yourself out here in this sport, just go ahead and get a tattoo on your face, man. There's there's almost no better way to do it. I mean it does – back in the days of regular media scrums and everything pre-fight, it does give you an interesting talking point. If you can show up with a face tattoo and be like, oh, this? Yeah, that was just spur of the moment kind of deal. All right. Last question this week comes to us from Irish radio personality Eamon Dunphy. He writes, so you guys made a passing remark about being on Spotify last week. What the fuck? I've been downloading from the CME site for years. Is there anything else you're hiding from us, co-maniacs? If a CME listener tweets you a good idea and you follow up, maybe share the news with the rest of us so we can join in. Okay, fair enough. The co-main event podcast is available on Spotify now. I feel like we've mentioned that before. I don't think, yeah, we, we maybe don't like say it on every show or keep it out front, but but like... You know, it's one of the it's one of the big podcast platforms now. You got to have your show on Spotify. So yeah, of course the uh, the CME uh, is available over on Spotify. Just so you guys know. Yeah. Anything we else you're hiding from us? We folks? have a we have a newsletter. Did people know about that? It's very it's the uh, the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. Yeah. You know what? In retrospect, I'm not sure that touting the easy unsubscribability of the Breakfast of Champions newsletter was the greatest idea. Yeah. Because people do be unsubscribing. How about, uh, should we take the moment to mention that we have a Patreon? I think Patreon. people know about that. .com at this point. slash co-main event. What about the, uh, what about the co-main event podcast merchandise that you guys can get over at the, over at cottonbureau.com? Do you think people know about that? About the uh, Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirts, Dundasso t-shirts, and CME logo t-shirts that you can pick up over there? I don't know. Now I'm questioning everything. I guess, I guess what Eamon Dunphy is implying here is that we don't spend enough time plugging our wares. Yeah, which, that's got to be it. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know about that assertion. In any case, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, comment, concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, Ben, what's the link say? It says email the podcast. That will get you in touch with us while you're there. Sign up for that Breakfast of Champions newsletter that we mentioned. It comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss when we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. 
The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And this is the kicker. If you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. Although as I sit here today, I wonder why would you want to? I can't think of a single reason. Why would you want to unsubscribe from the co-main event podcast? Breakfast of Champions Friday newsletter. Unless you hate fun. I guess you don't like fun. I guess you're actively against fun. That's why so many people unsubscribe. In any case, do that right now. We're going to get started with round number one. Well, Ben, Jonathan Dwight Jones has been having a very weird time over the past couple weeks. I feel like we keep talking about this story on our various podcast platforms, and every time we talk about it, something unforeseen and even more over the top than before develops pretty much as soon as we publish the episode of that show. Uh... This time around, it's it's a it's a doubleheader. We got it's a two pronged bit of news here developing about John Jones vis a vis his ongoing spat in public with the UFC and UFC president Dana White over what John Jones sees as as inefficient or in a you know insufficient pay. They refused, in his words, to discuss uh, added compensation for a proposed heavyweight fight against Francis Ngannou, which made John Jones mad. The thing that has happened now since the last time we talked about this, which I believe was on Friday during the damn power hour, is that John Jones appeared to announce on Twitter, number one, that he's going to vacate the light heavyweight title and perhaps sit out as long as it takes for the UFC to pony up the money for him to take one of these super fights. I just mentioned he's been talking about Ngano In this latest kind of spree of tweets that he put out there, he said that uh, maybe he would sit out until 2021, and hopefully by then the UFC would be willing to open its pocketbooks to have him fight Israel Adesanya. So that's number one. Number two, video has emerged, Ben, of recently – maybe former light heavyweight champion John Jones, out in the streets of Albuquerque during the civil unrest there and the protests over the, the killing of George Floyd, taking, going up to people that he, that, that he sees trying to tag buildings in Albuquerque with, with various graffitis and, and taking their spray cans away from them. We assume to throw them in the trash. I guess we'll start with the first point, Ben. Are you buying all this from John Jones relinquishing the title, sitting out for perhaps an extended period of time until he gets his money? Um, not really. That just seems like kind of a familiar cycle that uh, we've seen other people go on before. Just because eventually, I mean, we saw John Jones make this similar claim not too long ago when he initially heard that you know the UFC wasn't going to pay him more to fight Francis Ngannou, and he he was. His one of his initial reactions was, "All right, well, I won't see you guys for a while. Have fun." And then, kind of came back later that same day, maybe even, and was like, "Okay, I was a little bit emotional. I guess I'll fight Jan Blachowicz next. Whatever. I just think it's disappointing." And then now we're going back and forth. It, it is such a weird turn of events. We were talking not too long ago about how with this battle back and forth between Dana White and John Jones, it's like, how could John Jones possibly be made into a semi-sympathetic figure after all the stuff that all the, the stuff he's kind of put himself through after getting arrested for a DUI during the damn pandemic while he's out there uh, shooting his gun out the window of a car. Well, Dana White managed to find a way to make John Jones into a, like the sympathetic figure in all this. And it's just so crazy because you're looking at this whole situation and going, all right, so you could have had a huge super fight. John Jones versus Francis Ngannou, which you're going to sell a ton of pay-per-view buys with that. You just are. There's no way to screw that one up if you make that fight. And instead of trying to make it, you just tell him, nope, you don't get any more money. And now the next thing you know, John Jones, one of the, the few bankable pay-per-view stars that you got that's actually around all the time, that you can kind of semi-rely on, is telling you he's done for a while. 
And even if I, I don't think there's any chance that John Jones really just walks away from the sport. I don't think he's going to get his release from the UFC either. I think event, you know, he'll be back, maybe even be back before the end of the year, just the way these things kind of go with John Jones. But it seems like wouldn't it have been preferable to make the big money fight with John Jones instead of just get into a pointless pissing match with John Jones? That's the part I don't understand here. Yeah, John Jones has been undercutting his own public persona, his own legacy, if you will, for years throughout his tenure in the UFC. And here comes Dana White in less than about two weeks, makes the guy as likable as he's been in a decade. That's a master promoter at work, Ben. <laughs> well, Dana White. That, that claim that Dana White makes, like when he's at the, the post fight press conference on Saturday and being asked about the John Jones situation, and he claims, you know, like, okay, John Jones says I'm tarnishing his image. He's tarnished his own image. And you're like, okay, that is true. John Jones has done that. But for the UFC president to try to hold that up as that's the reason why he can't get any more money, -uh. no man. We don't believe that for a second. Like you you just said you weren't going to do anything to him when he got the last DUI. Like you're not going to punish the guy for that. You don't really care about any of that stuff as long as it keeps him – or as long as it doesn't keep him from fighting, as long as he doesn't get actually locked up in the pokey to where he can't accept a UFC fight and make that pay-per-view money for the UFC, the UFC is not particularly concerned about any of this stuff that, that John Jones gets himself into. As long as he can still show up and fight for them, they, they don't ever seem to care about all that stuff at other times. So don't then turn around and tell us, like, that's why he can't get more money. And it's just like... If you want to make that case, like, oh, he's hurt himself as a pay-per-view draw, but with all this stuff... Really? Because Conor McGregor still is a, a pay-per-view draw, and he's done some stuff outside the cage that has been a problem. Floyd Mayweather, like maybe the most problematic uh, combat sports figure out there. Also the, the biggest pay-per-view star that boxing has had. So it just doesn't – that line of reasoning just doesn't work from Dana White. And if you're going to – like Dana White claiming, okay, he wanted Deontay Wilder money, which is, in Dana White's words, absurd – and just an obscene amount of money. And even if you are the greatest fighter, that doesn't necessarily equal the most money or anything. But if you look at like the Deontay Wilder-Tyson Fury rematch that they had just a few months ago, that sold pay-per-view buys right about in the same range as John Jones versus Daniel Cormier too. Like a different, slightly different price point. That one costs a little bit. The, the Fury-Wilder rematch costs a little bit more on pay-per-view. But not that much of a difference, and they sold right about the same, and yet uh, Deontay Wilder is making a guarantee that's like five times higher than John Jones's guarantee. So you, if you're trying to make that argument from, from Dana White, it, it just the, the logic of it doesn't add up. Yeah, Dana White has been telling on himself a little bit out here yeah. these past couple of weeks. Like on one hand, he's, he's telling Brett Okamoto that John Jones is the, the – he's saying that there's no debate – that John Jones is the greatest MMA fighter of all time. Uh, so he's on the one hand, he's saying that. On the other hand, he's saying just because you're the greatest of all time doesn't mean you can get thirty million dollars for a fight. Uh, which I don't know, man. If you are a a a guy who's an up and coming MMA fighter, at some point, do you look around and, and do you think, well, why am I doing this then? Yeah. Like, why am I sacrificing my my future health, my body? maybe uh, my life and you're going to put a cap on my earning potential that is far below what I could make if I did the same thing right across the hall in a sport that I think we all acknowledge is not as healthy as MMA. Like (laughs) I don't understand like uh, what argument Dana White is trying to make there. And of course the unsaid part of the entire Dana White uh, argument here against John Jones. It's not really like that we can't afford to pay John Jones this money. It's we can't afford to pay John Jones this money and maintain our business model where we keep 85% of the profits. Like yeah, that's the part that goes unsaid here. And that's the other thing too that we all know is when Dana White's talking, trying to lay out the economics of it, like, hey, I told, I told him he could come in and talk to Hunter Campbell and he would walk him through the numbers. And John Jones saying, I don't care about the numbers. The numbers portion of it for the UFC includes, this is what we regard as our profit margin, and we're going to keep it that way. We've seen the documents where the UFC is saying to its own investors, like, hey, don't worry. Don't worry about fighter pay creeping up and cutting into our profit margins here. We won't allow that to happen. 
we have a plan to keep fighter pay below this certain threshold. And uh, that's how we're going to maintain like this wild profitability that we have. And so that's you're right that that is going unsaid from Dana White. But I think a lot of people, a lot of us are realizing like, OK, we know that that's part of the calculation that's going into it. We also know, though, that you would make a ton of money off of John Jones versus Francis Ngannou. And it's the strange thing to me is that it makes me wonder if we're just seeing what the UFC's like some of the consequences of the UFC's current model, where it realizes it is churning out content. That's part of the business plan right now, is just it doesn't all have to be great. You just got to get that stuff on ESPN, you got to get it on ESPN Plus, you got to deliver that stuff. And if you do that, if you just deliver the content, you have these guarantees built in. It doesn't even have to be really popular or well-watched. And so then when there comes a time where there's an opportunity to make a fight that would be super popular, that everybody wants to watch, but then you'd have to like pay a little bit more for it and also maybe set the precedent that a fighter can, even if he's under contract, can kind of hold you over the coals and renegotiate in the middle of the deal for a fight-by-fight basis. And it seems like the UFC is deciding, nope, still not worth it. Not We don't need it. We, we're making plenty of money anyhow. And we don't want to go down that road. I agree with you that any time a fighter does this thing where they say they're going to sit out, it is hard to forecast a, a, like a positive end or a, or a substantive end here. Just because we've seen it before, you know, going all the way back to Randy Couture doing it, you know, before the 2010s, and it it, it hasn't worked out yet for a fighter really. Uh, but John Jones is 33, 32 years old. He's going to turn 33 this summer. So he's still a relatively young man in the grand scheme of, you know, mixed martial arts lifespans. And clearly he's a guy, though, that has some wear and tear on the tires. He's been in this game for a long time. Once upon a time was the youngest champion in UFC history, et cetera, et cetera. Is it crazy to think that if he is mad enough and motivated enough that John Jones could be the guy to take some manner of substantive action, either on behalf of himself or on behalf of, of fighters at large, to try to you know do some of these legal maneuvers that, as outsiders looking in, we've kind of been waiting for someone to come along and do for a long time. Uh, do you think he's really interested in that, though? I mean, it's I hard to a- imagine him ha- have either having the stick to or like having the uh, the uh, the interest, I guess, as you say, to 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 like uh, raise all boats. Yeah. Well, and we've talked about it before. The, there are things in UFC contracts that if you challenge them and you went to court over it and you, you spent all that time and money to force a decision on, might not hold up. But the fight promoters, and this is true in boxing, even with the Ali Act, uh, at least, you know, the Ali Act at least gives fighters in boxing a framework under which to challenge some of the stuff. And, uh, you don't see it go all the way usually, but at least it gives them some kind of thing that that says like lays out some rules of what you can and can't do in a contract. But promoters always know when they get into a legal battle with a fighter that fighters just don't have time on their side. Fighters don't have that kind of time to waste and the wheels of justice grind slowly with stuff like that. So it's always an advantage to the promoter whenever you get into any kind of like protracted legal battle. And I don't see John Jones really, even if he gets fired up for a little while and decides, okay, I'm mad at the UFC. I can't see him staying with that long enough to actually force any meaningful change that would go beyond John Jones. I can see him sitting out for a little while and continuing to talk about this until the UFC feels the pressure to see what it can do about making that fight. And this is one of the things we talked about on Friday, but it seems odd how, the UFC would see a request for more money and say, no, absolutely not. And we're not even going to talk about it. Like, even if you think that he's asking, you know, Dana White saying he's asking for Deontay Wilder money, John Jones saying, I never mentioned a figure. I just, I was told beforehand, if you want to make more money, you got to go to heavyweight. And I wanted to have that conversation. And they said, absolutely not. We won't pay you a dime more. And that seems odd. Like, why won't you at least have the conversation to see if you can come to some agreement that would allow you to put on this fight? Can you imagine how underwhelming it would feel if the UFC manages to book, like in three months' time, John Jones versus Jan Blachowicz. Yeah. Like, even uh, the rematch with Dominic Reyes, which I think would be a good fight to make, and I think a lot of people would be interested in that based on how the first fight went. Now, it would seem like a just kind of ho-hum backup plan. And that's just solely because of what's gone on with this whole Francis Ngannou thing. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. And yet, you know, John Jones being out here talking, you know, one of the tweets he sent during this this public spat with Dana White was sort of like, look, man, both my brothers are in the NFL. I see how they are treated as athletes. I see how they're paid. And I've kept my mouth shut about it for a long time. Like one of the frustrating parts of of that exchange is like, again, from the outside looking in being like, well, you know why that is, right, man? Like <laughs> you, you understand why those guys get paid so much more money than you, you do. It's not necessarily because there's just more money there. Although clearly we know in the NFL, there's, there's a lot of money, but like they have a union, they have yeah. collective bargaining. They fought for that money collectively and, and eventually got it. That's, that's the difference, but it doesn't seem like, or at least we've seen no acknowledgement that, that, you know, that he's willing to, to, to go that route. Um, all right. Well, let's talk for a minute about, the video of him taking the spray can being out in the, in the Albuquerque streets, taking spray cans away from, from protesters and uh, graffiti graffiti guys. Like what, what are we to make of this, of John Jones kind of like uh, once again, yeah, like see, seeming like he can't really sit still. And especially at a time like this, when he's uh when he is uh, uh, has just said, he's not going to fight for a while. We immediately see him turning his attention to, you know, I guess you got to give him credit for for trying to do some community good. I just I'm not quite sure how to take it in the grand scheme of, scheme of things. Yeah, do you think if you're John Jones's manager and you see a video of him out in the streets in Albuquerque uh, right now, are you going, oh no, oh no, 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 Johnny, 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 let's go home, let's go home and w- watch this one unfold on TV, big guy. There, there's a lot of th- ways for this to go wrong out there for John Jones. But- yeah, absolutely, man. You know, John Jones is out here taking spray cans out of people's hands. Chuck Liddell's out there trying to break up fights in, in, in Huntington Beach. You know, MMA fighters doing their part. How about that? No, I know the, the world is upside down, man. Everything's, everything's gone crazy out there. Chuck Liddell, peacemaker. John Jones, social activist. And I'm not, I don't even know how to respond to it. Well, this might be a good segue into my Are You Fucking Kidding Me for the week. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? What is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Well, while John Jones and Chuck Liddell are out there trying to help people, I saw Tito Ortiz in his ongoing constant live stream of every passing thought that enters his enormous head. He has a conspiracy theory about all this, Chad. Oh, no. Yep. Uh, Tito Ortiz posted a video talking about it saying how, did you happen to notice that the guy they arrested for supposedly killing uh, the, this man in Minneapolis, George Floyd, that the, the, the cop who did it and the cop, cop who they arrested, they don't look anything alike. Tito Ortiz. Oh, oh boy. Peeking behind the curtain. Are so Tito thinks, we, Tito thinks there's a body double or we got the wrong guy? What's he, what's he saying here, Ben? What's the... See, I don't even know. I don't even know where this conspiracy goes. I just know that only Tito <laughs> I know where Ortiz, it goes. It goes to the highest levels. <laughs> only Tito Ortiz is dumb enough to think of it. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, did you see this? The UFC saying that due to the lack of a live crowd at its events this year, it might, quote, lose $100 million? Wow, that's significant. Now, I'm no business genius, Ben, as anyone can attest. But where I come from, there's a difference between, quote unquote, losing money and just not making as much money as you thought you were going to make. I see what you're saying. Are you fucking kidding me? Think about it this way. If I think my grandma is going to put a crisp $20 bill inside my 12th birthday card, but instead she only gives me a five, I guess first off, fuck you, grandma. (laughs) But I didn't lose $15. I have $5 I didn't have before. So when you see the UFC talking about how much money it's going to quote unquote lose and you see headlines around the various websites using that same wording, remember the UFC had $900 million in revenue last year and $800 million the year before that. So just know that the UFC isn't going to lose $100 million this year just because fans can't come to the shows. Uh, They're just not going to make the insane amount of money that they thought they were going to make. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back for round number two. Can a 
of bullshit is your grandma thinks she's pulling? I don't know. Fuck you, grandma. Uh, you want to do the intro here for Gilbert Burns and Tyron Woodley? Sure. We'll chat on Saturday night in the UFC on ESPN. We saw Gilbert Burns go out there against former welterweight champion Tyron Woodley and kind of make it look easy. Just a domination across the board for Gilbert Burns. Gets Tyron Woodley in some trouble early, uh, hurts him, opens a cut above his eye, and it looked like Tyron Woodley just, again, never got started. Now, when that happens once against Kamaru Usman in the, the fight where he lost his title, it felt like, okay, that can happen. You know, fighters will tell you. You go out there some nights, your body just isn't there for you. It, the, the mechanism never really switches on, and it's a bad feeling, but it can happen to anybody. Now it's happened t- twice where Tyron Woodley got that look in his eye, especially down the stretch in this fight. You can tell he knows he's losing the fight. He knows time is running out. And still, he's on the back foot, backing up against the fence. He's uh, content to just hang out in the clinch, kind of waiting for the, the bell to sound and the fight to be over. It just doesn't look like he has any sense of urgency. And afterwards, he, he was even kind of surprised. He said, like, talking about being oddly at peace after losing this fight. Are we seeing the end of the road here for Tyron Woodley? Yeah, I mean, it's possible. Uh, the guy is 38 years old, so you, you know it's possible that he's closing in on the, the end of his athletic prime. Uh, and as you said, we've we've kind of seen him again and again throughout his career have this issue where if he can't do what he wants to do or he encounters some adversity, he kind of retreats into this defensive shell uh, where it's not as though he's not dangerous because he is, it's just, but it just seems like he can't string together uh, the the prolonged offense that Tyron Woodley needs to to put somebody away or to take over a fight. The weird thing about this this Gilbert Burns fight is that it looked almost exactly like I thought it was going to look, but with the roles completely reversed. Like I thought Tyron Woodley would be the guy with the dominant physicality in this fight. I thought he would be the guy pushing Gilbert Burns up against the fence. I thought he would be the guy scoring the occasional takedown with the, a little bit of punishing ground and pound. I thought he would be the guy with, with more ability to hurt his opponent on the feet in the striking exchanges. But it turned out that the person who was doing all that stuff was Gilbert Burns right from the beginning of the fight. As you said, he hurt Tyron Woodley in the first minute or two. And like, honestly, it seemed a credit to Tyron Woodley that he even survived that early onslaught. It seemed like we were about to, to get a stoppage there, a big cut over the eye of Tyron Woodley in the early going. And like you said, it just doesn't, uh, d- doesn't seem like he can quite as easily shift back into the things that he wants to try to do when he encounters that that adversity. Uh, this was also his his first fight since that loss to Kamara Usman at UFC 235 back in in March of 2019. He hadn't fought since then, so maybe a little bit of a rust on uh, Tyron Woodley headed into this Gilbert Burns fight. But I don't know, man. Like previous to losing his title to Usman. Uh, he had had a, a pretty nice little run there with the UFC 170 pound title. Uh, he was, he was six wins without a loss. And now I think we, we are all kind of looking at each other, trying to figure out what's next from Tyron Woodley. Do you see this as a commentary on, uh, you know, maybe a, a future for Woodley that's not as bright as we would have expected? Well, when you think about where he is right now, the combination of his age and the fact that the UFC never seemed to exactly love having Tyron Woodley as his welterweight champion, it kind of seems like there's not much of a chance, much of a path back to the title for him. So then it's like, what is left? If if he can't find kind of another gear to shift into, it's hard to see Tyron Woodley being the fun fight kind of guy later in his career, right? Because his fights aren't always that fun. And uh, I don't when I heard him talking after the fight, I felt like, okay, we've seen this kind of thing before, like that that kind of thing that happens to fighters sometimes, right? Where the the fire doesn't burn quite the same anymore, in part because you used it up. You know, you you, you did this for years and years and years, and you had that thing burning inside of you and driving you forward, and then it's just not there anymore. And usually, like a lot of fighters will tell you that that feeling afterwards, it's not so much like a regret that you know, you, things have changed for you and that you don't feel the same because there's a weird calm that comes with it. Like it's almost kind of nice to be in a different state of mind about it, but also it's kind of incompatible with where you need to be if you're going to be in, in there fighting in the cage for a living. And so I don't know, 
you wonder where where you go from here if you're Tyron Woodley. And I think obviously that's a decision that he has to make, and it's going to depend a lot on like where he is financially and what he might, what else he might think he has that he can do uh, once his fighting career is over. But uh, I don't know. I mean, on the on the flip side, you see Gilbert Burns come out of this, and suddenly you're talking about Gilbert Burns as a title contender. Are you not? Yeah, well, like I said at the beginning of the show, Gilbert Burns was a guy when he first showed up in the UFC in, in 2014 and he was undefeated and he was like a, a jiu-jitsu world champion. I believe at the time he was coming out of the Black Zillions camp in those days. And like basically we heard from people that knew him, people who had trained with him, his coaches, like this guy is the real deal. Sky's the limit for this guy. And so I think everyone was real excited to see how he would do in the UFC. He came in and like had his his first fight at welterweight, but then immediately uh, dropped to, to lightweight for the majority of the rest of his career up to this point. And had been kind of up and down, like certainly more wins than losses, but like enough losses sprinkled in there that I think, you know, by the time you get to the late teens, 2019, 2018, nobody was really – talking about Gilbert Burns as the next big thing or like a top title contender. Now you see he moves back up to welterweight last summer and he's put together four wins in a row, the last three of which Gunnar Nelson, Damian Maya, and Tyron Woodley are awful damn impressive. And at this point, I think you got to assume he he's going to emerge into that sort of you know, elite group of welterweight contenders. Maybe the, I don't know if it's good news or bad news for Gilbert Burns that it seems like there's several of those guys out there right now uh, you know, not only Kamar Usman and Jorge Masvidal, but uh, Leon Edwards, uh, like kind of a little crowd, a logjam, if you will, around that around that title. We're all still waiting to find out how that all of that is going to play out. Do you did you see this fight, Ben? And we're immediately like, okay, Gilbert Burns is he's a capital G guy in this division, and he's ready to 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 fight the rest of the best at 170 pounds. You know, I still think that. Usman versus Masvidal is the fight to make. And yet I'm still perplexed that we haven't already just gone ahead and made that move forward with this division. Now, I mean, if you're trying to be the guy kind of sneaking up into the conversation as a welterweight contender, maybe it is a good thing because the more time goes by, you know, we, we love to fall prey to recency bias in the sport. More time since Jorge Masvidal's last win, the better for you. You come out, you get a win over a former champion and it's right on people's minds. And then, they, they might kind of forget and say, okay, sure, let's do Gilbert Burns. It also seems like the way the UFC is looking at a lot of this stuff right now, whoever is the easiest to work with might be the guy who gets the, the welterweight title shot. Like that might be the deciding factor in a lot of this, which is weird. But I don't I mean, it almost seems like you have so many good contenders at welterweight right now that you kind of can't go wrong unless you just don't manage to book any of them. Yeah, he certainly looked great against Tyron Woodley. Uh, capable on the feet, powerful, good takedowns, and then of course we all know about the the jujitsu pedigree, uh, and re- and in really good shape. I think I could throw out there at the same time because these guys go twenty five minutes, and and Gilbert Burns looked pretty stinking fresh, pretty much from start to finish. Like uh, it's easier to stay fresh when you're the hammer than it is if you're the nail, obviously. But uh, but yeah, it's hard not to like what you saw from 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 Gilbert Burns throughout the duration of this fight. And I'm not suggesting he should be the number one contender, but like you said, we're in, we're in, in this kind of weird time in the sport right now where it seems like if you are available and maybe you're willing to fight for a little bit less money than some of the other guys that you are, you know, being considered alongside, maybe it's, maybe you get the green light. So uh, it will be very interesting, I think, to see how the welterweight title picture plays out. Uh, well, you know, in the immediate over the next few months and like, uh, obviously I want to see Kamar Usman versus Jorge Masvidal. I think that's the fight to make. I think that's the, the big money fight to make in this division. I think that's the, the one of the most interesting matchup of styles to make right now. But like if, if we are in this weird situation and it turned out that like Usman was going to fight Gilbert Burns. Uh, well, first of all, I would feel real bad for Leon Edwards, but second of all, like I wouldn't argue with that fight. Like that would be a fight that I would hashtag would watch. Although, uh, I would have to understand that it's, that it would kind of come out of the blue in this division and would maybe come at the expense of a couple of the other top contenders. Yeah, Leon Edwards just did not get a great deal out of any of this when you think about it. Yeah, he continues to be in a real kind of weird spot. A uh, uh, 
I don't know if I would say it's unprecedented, but like he's just one of these guys where like obviously he's going to be a super tough fight for uh, for anybody out there, and uh, and he's you know he's 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 going to offer up the maybe the smallest monetary uh, compensation out of any of them. Like and he was the guy who was supposed to fight Tyron Woodley, right? Like they they were supposed to do the dang thing in March before we had to uh, before we had to postpone and cancel a bunch of these events. And then probably because of travel restrictions, hard to get guys in from London at the time being, he loses out on this opportunity to fight Tyron Woodley and Gilbert Burns kind of cruises in and gets the W. But just like given what we saw from Tyron Woodley in this fight, it's, you know, it's easy to believe that Leon Edwards could have, could have made a statement here as well. Yeah. Meanwhile, just got to watch him across the pond. So we'll keep an eye on that. We'll keep an eye on the title picture. We'll keep an eye on Gilbert Burns. Lots of interesting stuff going on in this division. Uh, as for right now, though, we're going to start round number three. That begins right now. All right, Ben. Well, this Saturday, June 6th, the first pay-per-view event of what you might call the UFC Apex Arena era in this sport as the women's featherweight title fight between Amanda Nunes and Felicia Spencer headlines this card. Uh, Co-main event, Rafaela Sunsau against Cody Garbs, uh, Aljamain Sterling and Corey Sandhagen on this, Neil Magny versus Anthony Rocco Martin. And of course, as we talked about earlier in the show, main card rounded out by Eddie Wineland against Sean O'Malley. Now, you look at this card, Ben, what are your impressions here? Like, this looks like a relatively fun fight card to me, like one where there are going to be some bangers. But at the same time, it's hard for me to imagine anyone pulling 70 bucks out of their pocket and plunking, plunking it down to watch this pay-per-view. Yeah, this would be a fantastic ESPN card. Just really, really good. Like, overall, I think in the, the aggregate, you get some good value out of this card. You get a, a lot of good fights, fights that I, I feel like I want to watch. And if you're a shit eating wild person for the sport, the kind of fights where you know these people and you're excited about the, the matchups. And yet there's nothing on there that says, like, okay, this is premium quality mixed martial arts entertainment and you absolutely have to see it. Like it is, it's hard to imagine the, the person who, if you're not just already in the camp of I buy every single UFC pay-per-view automatically, like if you're the kind of person who's evaluating them one by one and trying to decide whether it's worth your money, I don't know what you see here that you think, okay, this is absolutely unmissable. Because, I mean, I, I love – I think uh, Amanda Nunes, Nunes, she's the best female fighter that we've ever seen in MMA. She's got the, that GOAT status locked up just any way you look at it. And yet – when you put her on top of the fight card against somebody like Felicia Spencer, who it seems like, well, the, one of the best things you can say about Felicia Spencer is she's very tough. That, you know, she she's not going to be easy to get out of there. But it's not like people were absolutely clamoring for this matchup. It's just kind of like, okay, I guess she's next at women's featherweight because we just don't have a whole lot going on there. Uh, Amanda Nunes being one of the few fighters who actually be a champ champ and defend in both divisions. So that's cool. But it's not like it really sets anybody's hair on fire to think about this particular fight going down. Yeah, this will officially be Amanda Nunez's first defense of the Women's Featherweight Championship. She beat Chris Cyborg, as we all remember, at UFC 232 in December of 2018 and has since defended the Bantamweight title twice, beating Holly Holm and Jermaine uh, Durandamy. Excuse me, Holly Holmes and Jermaine Durandamy. Uh, But here she is coming in against Felicia Spencer uh, for the first defense of her women's featherweight title. And Felicia Spencer, like you said, is a person she's, she was undefeated before she ran up against Chris Cyborg, uh, uh, last July, UFC 240. And in a fight where as has been noted far and wide, the commentary largely highlighted Felicia Spencer's toughness and not necessarily the fact that she was kind of getting the brakes beat off her by Chris Cyborg. And then she, uh, she rebounds with kind of, a. uh, a gimme fight against Zara Farron Dos Santos in February. And now she, here she is tumbling into a 145 pound title fight against Amanda Nunes. Now, uh, Felicia Spencer was the Invicta women's featherweight champion. She beat Pam Sorensen back in November of 2018. So she does have something of a championship pedigree, but this, and I guess you're dealing with a very shallow weight class here, just in terms of, of competition, 
But like, I'm kind of surprised the extent to which the UFC has seemed like it was real, real excited about Felicia Spencer here in the in the uh, in the recent times. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I mean, I, I think it's kind of weird when I think about how Amanda Nunes still seems like she flies under the radar, and it, it still seems like we don't even really give enough attention to the fact that all this champ champ stuff that went on. Everybody was had just absolute champ champ fever. Everybody wanted not just one belt, two belts, and then everybody when they get the second belt, at least one of those divisions, they completely forget about it. So it is a pretty big deal, I think, to see her still going out there and going to go back and forth between those weight classes and be like a present active champion in both of them. And yet it seems like now that we finally have that, that thing that we always wanted and didn't get from anybody else, we just kind of don't even take notice of it. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. She seems like a person who needs to get a lot more credit by and large than she gets all the time. Uh, what about the return of Cody, Cody Ray Allen Garbrandt here? AKA Cody Garbs. Man, if your name is Cody Ray, you got to be going by Cody Ray Garbrandt this whole time. Because that just, that makes you sound like a country music star or something. Yeah. Cody that Ray. makes you sound sounds like, like a guy I'm going to remember. Cody Ray is a guy who uh, is immediately a top NASCAR driver. Just exactly, the, the yeah. minute he gets behind the wheel. He's coming in off, off three straight losses here, Ben. Two of them, obviously, to TJ Dillashaw, one to Pedro Munoz at UFC 235 last March. But uh, another tough assignment here against Rafael Asuncao, you know, a guy who seemed like he was maybe going to be the future of this division, a guy who was on top of the world at one point in Cody Garbs. Now he's going to have this like kind of low profile co-main against Rafael Asuncao, who also comes in on two straight losses. Like what, what do we expect to see, if anything, here from, uh, from pedal to the metal Cody Ray Garbrandt? I mean, you talk about a must-win situation. Like this – this is a guy who really, really badly needs a win right now, but also is in a tough fight. That's not, that's not going to be an easy night of work for anybody against Rafael Sunsau. So uh, I don't know. We've seen in the last couple of fights where Cody Garbrandt seems to have that that button, you know, where he gets hit and he's just going to plant his feet and wants to throw back and wants to get you back right away, and it's gotten him into trouble. That's one of those things where it seems like it ought to be a fixable problem. The question is, is Cody Ray Garbs the guy who can fix it? Or is he the guy that just that that's going to be his problem his whole career? And once people have seized on it, they just kind of know that about him. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Maybe this is a fight where we get an answer to that. Uh, it, it does seem like kind of a litmus test for what we're still capable of here for Cody Garbrandt against Rafael Asuncao. Ben, what, what other fight, you know, we didn't, we didn't talk about the prelims at all earlier in the round, but like, obviously you got Chase, Chase Hooper coming back. Uh, you got Gerald Mearshart on here against Ian Heinish. Uh, you got some other, you know, slightly lesser known guys, but maybe the, the makings of some exciting fights here. Is there another fight on this card uh, where you're looking at it and you're thinking, this is one that I definitely want to be in my seat for? Well, I mean, Alzabine Sterling and Corey Sandhagen, I think that's going to be an important fight for the division there. And, and I'm excited to see Corey Sandhagen more and to see him against a, a really tough guy in Aljamain Sterling because that's a big test. But if you can, if you go out there and you beat somebody like Aljamain Sterling, then, okay, we're, we're, you're right there in the conversation for the next title fight in the division and everybody knows it. I also, though, just for sure entertainment value, Alex Perez versus Juicy A. Formiga, that's a... On the early prelims, I believe on uh, ESPN Plus, and uh, that's going to be a good fight. Just fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. All right, let's do uh, just saying stuff, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, did you know that right now you can go over to UFC.com and buy yourself a UFC branded Fight Island beach ball? I did not know that. Hell yeah, you can, my guy. You can go over there and get yourself a branded UFC Fight Island beer koozie. Whoa. Now, see, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to invite any comparisons between people getting their Fight Island beer koozies and getting their CME beer koozies. I don't feel like that's a road that we want to go down. No, but you can no, go, you can go to UFC.com, get yourself one of two available branded UFC Fight Island t-shirts something you you can do right now i'm just saying i guess this week 
I'm becoming more and more convinced that this Fight Island thing isn't actually real. You the remember Zufa Boxing? You? Remember with Zufa Boxing? What did we do? We went out and printed up the t-shirts. Yep. Yep. Never happened. Now we got Fight Island. Get yourself a beach ball. Get yourself a beer koozie. Get yourself a t-shirt. Man, there ain't no Fight Island. Come on. This is a this is one long, protracted, practical joke by the UFC. They're just trying to get us to buy these Fight Island t-shirts, man. Does that make you more excited about the merchandise now that you can feel like, okay, I'll, I can have this. And then years from now, it'll be a thing where people see it. They're like, oh, I remember that. The Fight Island that never was. Kind of. It would be kind of like a collector's item. Like, you got to admit, it would be cooler to have a Fight Island t-shirt if there were never any fights on Fight Island than it would be if you bought a Fight Island t-shirt and then like Fight Island became a regular stop in the UFC schedule. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just saying. Just saying. What do you got? Chad, I'm just saying, we, we mentioned this back and forth between John Jones and Dana White earlier. And when John, when Dana White was talking about it with the media and after John Jones had called him a liar, said that he was lying when he said that they had asked for crazy money, said that they never even mentioned a figure. Dana White continued to dispute that and said when talking to reporters after Saturday night's event, why the fuck would I lie? What would I lie for? Chad, I guess this week I'm just saying, I could think of a few reasons. I could think, I think it's possible. It's possible that Dana White might encounter a situation where he would feel like uh, it might be worth his while to bend the truth in talking with the media. I'm just saying, it's a scenario I could potentially envision. Just saying. You could, uh, you could imagine a scenario by which the, a fight promoter might bend the truth, huh? I'm just saying. Just saying. Wow. All right, well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to tell you all the stuff that happens at UFC 250. And also don't forget, we're back again on Wednesday for the live chat over on the Patreon page. We've also got a movie club podcast to roll out on Wednesday about uncut gems. And then we'll be back again on Friday to break down, you know, some more stuff during the power hour. And don't forget about the athletic fighter survey. Go check all that stuff out. We implore you. I think you'll like it. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, oh, shit, I didn't even say you You can get a UFC Fight Island oversized beach towel. Oh, well. That's, you can get all kinds of Fight Island stuff on here, man. It's amazing. Is it all beach-themed? Yeah. You can, get a, uh, you can get a water bottle. You can get a tote bag. You can get a Frisbee. You could get a, uh, a UFC Fight Island bucket cap like Sendog from Cypress Hill used to wear. Okay, now you're, you're, you're getting me interested. Board shorts. They got Fight Island board shorts. All right, they got a, a, going somewhere. A flor, they got a floral print Fight Island hat that looks like Sean O'Malley would wear it. Nice. I'm telling you, man. This, they got all kinds of merch out here available. I'm in. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Ben, uh, over or under, how much do you think the UFC oversized Fight Island beach towel costs? Uh, 20 bucks. Way under. Way under. How much could a beach towel possibly cost? Would you believe 50 bucks? I would not. No, I absolutely would not believe it. That's, that's the price. Get the fuck out of here. $8 for a beer koozie. Now see, $8 for a Fight Island inflatable beach ball. That seems reasonable to me. Yeah, it's going to be hours fun. Yeah, $50 for the beach towel. That's, that's, you're pushing it. You're pushing the, uh, my level of, of interest and my, my suspension of disbelief here. A $50 towel. $50 tower, eight, eight, $8 beer cruise.